I'll be reading in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, starting with verse 22 through chapter 9, verse 13. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do, you, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, 
Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Thus ends the reading of the word of God. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's really good to see you. Um, it's my joy, as always, to welcome you at the Grace International Church, especially if this is your first time visiting with us. A, a very, very warm uh, welcome. Yes, thank you. Let's, let's, let, let's adjust it. Uh, let me just say, by way of introduction, that um, what a wonderful, wonderful Asian night we had last night. Uh, for, for those of you who were here uh, with us, I mean, it was probably not half as much people, but close to that last night. Uh, thanks, Mario, wherever you are, and the, the team for just organizing that. It was, it was something amazing. Um, it, it, was, it was incredible. And, and thanks, Robert, also for uh, bringing the word, which is an essential part of, of us meeting together whenever we meet together. And actually, I was convinced by, the, by the Robert's introduction that the Asian night was essentially about Mario's engagement party, but uh, but it wasn't. No, it was a rumor. It was about the Jesus being in the wedding in Cana, not Mario and Cana, right? So, uh, but it was a lot, a lot of fun. Um, the second thing, uh, Andres introduced us already. Um, the, the idea of uh, of us going through Mark's gospel on Sundays. Now. For those of you who have been following uh, Mark's series, we are making big steps, big steps. Um, inevitably, in the way, uh, someone will, will still be puzzled uh, about many details that I do not touch on. So I was thinking to myself, why not have a question and answer time next Sunday? Not this Sunday, next Sunday. Because uh, as you will see, I will not touch on many details in our text today. But uh, I will raise more questions than I will be able to answer straight away. So please, uh, please um, either mentally um, jot down the questions that you have, or maybe jot down them on the piece of paper. There is a box uh, actually there with a little cards. So why not next Sunday pick up the box and, and the cards and write a question and we'll, we'll provide a, um, a place to, uh, to, to place them. And let's have a, a 10 or so minutes of, of Q&A next Sunday. That would be great. Uh, right, let us, let us uh, kick off with our today's, today's um, um, theme. Now, what are you passionate about? What, what, are you, what are you ready to fight for? And even fight for till your uh, final breath? In other words, sometimes people say, what is the hill that you are ready to die on? Now, for many people, for many people, they are different, different things. For some people, it is carbon footprint and global warming issues. They are really, really to fight for till their final breath. For other people, it is animal rights and saving extinguished species on the planet Earth. Uh, for others, it is fighting poverty and relief help in the third world countries. And these are all important things to be fighting for. We need people 
to be fighting for these things if we care about this earth. But what about Christians? What about us? What should we ultimately be passionate about? What should we ultimately fight for? What should be the hill, so to speak, that we should be and should be ready to die on? And I think the question, well, the answer to this question is very simple. It is about Jesus, who Jesus really is, and about making this Jesus, the real Jesus, known. This should be something that every Christian should be really, really passionate about. At least for Mark, for Mark, it is a hill to die on, and it is the identity of Jesus. If you get it wrong, Mark would say it is a very thin ice to be walking on. Well, the other week I was messaging with a friend. My friend, he goes to the church, but he doesn't fellowship with other Christians, uh, uh, really. So in our text exchange, he tells me that he has a problem with the teaching about the Trinity in the Bible. He says he doesn't see it in the scriptures. And I kind of quickly dropped him a few truths from the, the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, I and the Father, we are one. And when I return to my Father, Jesus says, me and my Father, we will send the Spirit and so I point him to these, these, these truths in the Bible. And I, you know, along the lines, I, I would think to myself, uh, how on earth we would know anything about God being triune? And of course, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the one who speaks about that. He reveals what God is really like. It all hangs on Jesus, who Jesus really is. And so I posted these truths again to my friend, and I said, well, can't you see what Jesus is saying? Just to realize the irony of my question in light of our Mark's gospel study. My friend has ears, but he doesn't hear. He has eyes, but he doesn't see. He does not understand. And so, my friends, we need Jesus to open our eyes to who he really is. And we need to the clear spiritual sight to know we are following the real Jesus. That's the main, main uh, point of, of today. We need Jesus to open our eyes to who he really is. And we need this clear spiritual sight so that we know that we are following the real Jesus. So Jesus is Christ. Can't you see? And it's not that simple. What is the nature of the inability to see who Jesus is? Is it neutral, naive ignorance? Or is it something more? And I think Mark's answer is there is definitely more to it. Now, it's going to be a quick, quick recap of where we left off last Sunday. 
It turns out our heart problem is actually worse than we thought. Uh, Jesus' disciples, along the Pharisees and Herod, they, um, they are a great case study for that. Now, do you remember last Sunday, we, we, we thought that it seemed that the disciples, they, they, you know, they, they maybe are not the sharpest knives in the drawer. Um, 6.52, and they were utterly astounded at Jesus, for they did not understand about the bread, about the loaves. In eight, chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 4, the disciples answered Jesus uh, in the feeding of the 4,000. How can one feed these people with bread here? It's a desolate place. How? And verse 14 of chapter 8, now they had forgotten to bring bread in the boat, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. We're going to starve to death. And we were thinking, well, maybe, maybe their problem was that they were just uneducated. You know, not too intelligent fishermen. Therefore, they just couldn't put two and two together. But that's not what we often observe in our lives, isn't it? Now, once in a while, I receive a call from someone I knew from the previous church. He would often ask a question about something, uh, about something that he's been reading in the Bible. And then we would chat for like 10 or 15 minutes with him. Now, he is a very, he is a very simple man. He's a construction worker. He's a plumber. He's a very simple man. But you know what? His thinking about the topic every time is spot on. Spot on. And it's amazing. While my other friend, who has master's degree in the science of communications, journalism, is completely clueless about these things. How come? Well, don't you think Mark is making here a profound point. The education and intelligence has very little to do with people's ability to see who Jesus is. The inability to see who Jesus is actually is the result of willful rebellion against God. It's the result of sin. You know, it's not like the disciples are completely clueless. No. If you have your Bibles open, chapter 8, verse 19, here is is the key. When I broke the five loaves, Jesus asks, for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. They said this immediately. They knew. And then Jesus continues. The seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And immediately they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you see that? The disciples knew exactly what has happened. They knew exactly what Jesus had done. And yet they didn't really believe in Jesus. Why? Because their unbelief wasn't neutral and naive ignorance. No, it was a willful, rebellious, and sinful ignorance. 
And you will think, is that true? Is that really true? Think verse 15. Why else would Jesus caution them? Watch out. Why else would Jesus say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod? I didn't make this. T- uh, I didn't make time for this uh, the previous Sunday. What is Jesus exactly warning his disciples against? What is the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of the Herod? And it is exactly this: the unrepentant and hardened heart. Pharisees had all the evidence they needed to confess Jesus as Christ, but they kept demanding more. Their hearts were hardened. And Herod, do you remember? Herod was listening to John the Baptist gladly, but he did not. He did nothing about what he was hearing. He did not repent. And so now Jesus asks his disciples in verse 17 the same question. Are you guys the same? Are you similarly, willfully rebellious? Are your hearts hardened? Are you unrepentant too? It's a very disturbing, very disturbing question. Turns out the disciples' heart problem is worse than we thought. Jesus is Christ, can't you see? No, I can't. Not because they are neutrally ignorant, but because they are willfully rebellious, ignorant. If that is true, how can we explain what is happening in verses 27 to 30? Let's read. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but what do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them not to tell, to tell no one about him. Now, friends, how come Peter suddenly, out of the blue, get it right. Now, considering everyone, considering everything that we have seen about the disciples, how is it that Peter is able to confess Jesus as the Christ? How? And I think the answer comes in verses 22 to 26. The healing of the blind man in Bethsaida is a physical demonstration (laughs) to what happens to Peter spiritually. And paired with the healing of the deaf man in a last week's passage, these two then point to Jesus being the one granting the disciples spiritual hearing and spiritual sight. We need Jesus to open our eyes to who he really is. Now, who do you say Jesus is? If you are a Christian uh, today, and most of us are Christian here today, right? You 
recognize and confess Jesus as Christ. Christ meaning God's anointed king. But think for a second, how, how did you arrive to this knowledge? I know we started to think about this this last week, but let's spend a bit more on this today. How on earth did you get who Jesus is? And here are a few options that people might say. You might be thinking that you are more intelligent than the next person. You know, I have a degree in theology. I worked out who Jesus is pretty quickly. It wasn't too hard. You might be saying you are less Herod-like than the next person. You know, you know, repentance for me wasn't, wasn't really an issue ever. I have always naturally accepted who Jesus is. Or, or you might be saying, you know, um, you're less Herod-like, or sorry, Pharisee-like than the next person, which is to say the evidence <laughs> for who Jesus is wasn't ever a problem for you. You put two and two together pretty quickly, and you had no problems accepting the identity of Jesus. Now, friends, I do hope this does not describe your thinking. Now, if it does, however, then please know that you might not actually be Christian yet. Because Christians, when Christians look back at what has happened to them, how they have arrived to the knowledge of who Jesus is, they say something like this. I was actually hard-heartened. I was unrepentant. I was actually really, really stubborn. Completely blind to the glories of Jesus. Absolutely unwilling and absolutely unable to move an inch closer to him. Closer to God. I was always straying just in the opposite direction. But God, but God had compassion on me and he opened my eyes to see and he opened my ears to hear the truth about him. That is how Christians say when they reflect back on what has happened to them? And friends, we will going to sing the song today. I think we can actually close the service with this, with this song that so perfectly reflects how much worse we were than we thought. And how much more amazing is what happened to us afterwards. But please hear the words even now. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Jesus is Christ, can't you see? No, I couldn't. I couldn't see. But he opened my eyes, and so now I see. But what's with the healing in two stages? Did you notice something very weird about the healing in between the disciples' blindness and sight? 
at first seeing men, but like trees walking, you know, sort of Lord of the Rings trees walking. And only the second time, he got clear vision. Is Jesus not powerful enough to pull up the miracle in one go? I mean, he only had to say two words, and the, the, the storm was instantly calm. He said only one sentence, and the paralytic got up. And again, he said only two words, Talitha Kumi, the girl, rise. And the Lazarus's daughter rose from the dead. And friends, this healing is not actually about Jesus' power, isn't it? Jesus is powerful. It is rather a visual description of the disciples' walk with Jesus. The point being, until Jesus dies, rises from the dead, ascends to the Father, and sends the Holy Spirit, until that happens, the disciples' understanding of Jesus will be partial. It will be partial. And I think this is what we begin to see in the second half of Mark's gospel. Peter, having just made this incredible confession about Jesus being the Christ, has now found himself in an awkward position. Not quite being able to understand what kind of Christ Jesus is. And friends, again, we need Jesus to open our eyes who he really is. And we need the clear spiritual sight to know that we are following the real Jesus. Jesus is Christ. Will you follow? Will you follow him. Now, I was thinking um, about how do the influencers nowadays gain their following? Are you following any influencer? Is anybody influencing you on the social media? Well, if you think you're not influenced, you're, you're wrong. You are, but you just are not aware of that. But what they do, what the influencers do, they ignite you know, they inspire, they infuse you with a vision of your dream life. That is basically a sentence of what influencers want to do. And often their lives, their, their, their lives um, are visible display of this success and prosperity that they represent. So is Jesus like that? Is he igniting? Is he inspiring? Is he infusing his future followers with the vision of their best life now? Well, let's see for ourselves, starting from verse uh, 31, actually verse 31 and, and 34. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
Now, does it not almost seem that Jesus wants to discourage people from following him? What a lousy recruitment campaign. Did you think? Now, speaking of lousy recruitment campaigns, it reminded me of this, this famous advertisement, which, as the story goes, um, Ernest Shackleton ran in the newspaper to recruit men for his endurance expedition. Well, uh, Shackleton was an Antar Antarctic. I know I quite always mix these two. Antarctic explorer from Great Britain. And well, anyways, here is the ad in the newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Don't you think it's the worst, the worst recruitment campaign ever? Is this how you international students were recruited to come to Latvia? Is that a similar advertisement? Because I sometimes think that actually this describes the life in Latvia in winter. Um, so well done for hanging in here. The spring is around the corner. Now, Jesus is brutally honest about his own mission. I'm going to suffer. I am going to die. And Jesus is brutally honest about what it means to follow him on this mission. You should be ready to suffer and die. Was this how Christianity was sold to you? Well, let's say your friend asks this week. Now, I am considering following this Jesus that you have been speaking about. So tell me in a nutshell, what does it mean to be a Christian? Would you tell them to be a Christian means being ready to suffer and die for Jesus? Would that be your first sentence? Well, actually, one of my Christian friends told exactly that to one young Christian who was probably baptized the previous week or so. The thing he said to him, you know, the Christian life is going to be really hard. It's a war. It's exhausting. It is draining. And he kept on. He kept on about this. And when we think about that, it just doesn't seem so plausible to our ears, doesn't it? At least so it was in Peter's case. Glance at verse 32. And Peter, sorry, and Jesus said these things plainly to Peter and the disciples. And what did Peter do? Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now that's quite something. Peter was thinking, something is not quite right here. Wait a minute. If Jesus is the God's promised king of old, he should be totally victorious. There is only one mission for him to conquer and defeat the Roman regime. So what did Peter get right about Jesus? Yes, 
that Jesus is about glory. But what did he misunderstand? That Jesus is about glory now. You see, it's not like Peter didn't want to follow Jesus. Peter really wanted to follow Jesus. But a different Jesus. Do you see we, why we need Jesus to open our eyes to see who he really is? We need the clear spiritual sight in order we would know that we are following the real Jesus. Not our imaginary Jesus. Not the influencer's Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. The real Jesus saw a demonic danger in Peter's objection. This was the hill that Jesus was ready to die on. So Peter got told off, verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, heavy words, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Guys, let me, let me spell this out for us. Wanting glory now and glory later, that is worldly thinking. That is the way Satan would want us to live and to think. But that is not how Jesus would want us to think and live. Now here is what Jesus says following him looks like. Verse 34 and onwards. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, Jesus' words are really challenging here, don't you think? They are much, much more demanding than we would have. But what do they mean? Now, deny yourself. Deny yourself. It is not, it's not fundamentally about giving up chocolate, kebab, coffee, and Netflix for Lent. I mean, it would sound quite plausible to us. We'd say, well done me. I gave up chocolate, kebab, coffee, and Netflix, all four, for Lent. But that's not what Jesus primarily would want us to do. And take up your cross is not putting up with a, a, you know, a difficult work colleague or uni mate or even a, a fellow Christian in the church. No. Denying yourself and taking up your cross means fundamentally, radically reorganizing your life priorities around the cross of Christ. Can I say it again? 
Denying yourself and taking up your cross means radically reorganizing your life priorities around the cross of Christ. The cross is always other-centered. And that means constantly asking yourself such questions like, positively, how can I use what God has given me to serve others more? Your skills, your possessions, your money, your house, your time, and any other God-given gift. How can I use these things to serve others and to do it more? And negatively, negatively, it will involve some self-probing questions like, what does my use of time, money, skills, my possessions tell about my life priorities? Are they centered around serving the gospel or serving me? Is my life basically about gaining life now or gaining the eternal life. Because friends, do you remember? It can't be both. It cannot be both. Verse 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will Save it. Now, of course, it takes some effort. It takes some real effort and time to work out what exactly this looks like in our own lives. But work it out. We must. We must if we are serious about following the real Jesus. But being serious about following Jesus doesn't mean being miserable all the time. Now, seeing following Jesus fundamentally about endless restrictions, about spoil sport, it doesn't mean that. You know, as a friend of mine said, Let's not take out fun out of fundamental. Let's not be like Peter, hearing only half of what Jesus is saying here. To him, it seemed that Jesus doesn't promise much. It's all suffering. It's all self-denial. It's all death. But that's only one half of it. We need to hear that a life of suffering and self-denial, and even death for Christ and the gospel that leads to the resurrection, that leads to glory and eternal life. And Jesus was very keen for the disciples to grasp this. Do you remember how we said earlier that Jesus, he's not like these um, you know, influencers. Jesus is not like the influencers who promise your dream life now. And that is true. That's true. But that is not to say that Jesus doesn't promise a dream life at all. Actually, Jesus does ignite 
Actually, Jesus does inspire. He does infuse his followers with a vision of dream life because that is the whole story. But that vision is not a vision of your best life now. It is a vision of the heavenly glory and the best life ever. So it turns out Jesus is the best influencer there is, isn't it? And that is what the inner circle of three disciples are exposed to. They really, really need Jesus to open their eyes to who he really is. And they need the clear spiritual sight to know that they are following the real Jesus and that it is worth it. They need the vision of Jesus that can't be unseen. Now that brings us to chapter 9, but I'm going to really, in a, in a way of summary, uh, go through it. Um, and that's going to be the last, last point. Now chapter 9, chapter 9 uh, begins with a puzzling verse. Glance at uh, verse 1 of chapter 9. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And this day will arrive only six days later in verse 2. I think that is what is actually happening um, on the mountain. That fulfills immediately the next week. What Jesus does, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on a mountain hike. It is a proper hike because the guys have their tents with them. Did you notice that? But it is also like no other hike they have experienced. Verses 2 to 4 um, show that. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were taking, talking with Jesus. Well, the disciples must have thought they are in some kind of a heavenly hall of fame, aren't they? The representatives of law, sorry, and the prophets are there. How, how more, how much more glorious it can be. And they are talking to Jesus that the disciples barely recognized. The super bleached, gloriously transfigured Jesus. The disciples and Peter are in such a state that the only reasonable thing they manage to suggest is, let's camp, let's camp here, let's camp here. But what is the point of this story? And how does it fit in? Now, friends, the point of the disciples' experience is to be convinced of life after death. That is the point of this story. Because they should not have seen Moses. They should not have seen Elijah in this life at all. There is no more Elijah. There is no more Moses to be seen. But Jesus says, no, there is. And there they are. And they are alive before God. 
there is life after death. And how does it fit in with the story so far? Verse 7, we hear Father God himself speaking for the second time in Mark's gospel. And what does he say? Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. What is it that Jesus has been saying just Denying yourself, taking up your cross, and being ready to lose your life will, need, will lead to salvation. Denying yourself, taking up your cross, losing your life now, really pays off. Now, it is worth using your job promotion to lay aside some money for the gospel work, it's really worth it. It is worth opening your home and heart for others to hear God's word. It's really worth it. It is worth standing up for Jesus in the environment that is hostile to God, be it your work, be it university or amongst your you know, non-Christian friends. It's worth it. And it is worth not Chasing all the things and opportunities that, that other people who do not know God do. Simply because they are fundamentally futile. Now friends, how, how on earth are we going to be able to do that? How are we going to be able to deny ourselves? To take up the cross? To serve others, not ourselves, etc. How? when we are convinced that this really, really leads to salvation, to eternal life, to the glory. But for that, we need Jesus to keep opening our eyes daily to who he is, who he really is. And we need that clear spiritual sight to keep knowing that we are following the real Jesus. to the eternal glory. Let's pray. Oh, gracious, gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word that is life, that is like often two-edged sword that is piercing our hearts, that is really, really um, diving deep and exposes our motivations, our desires and everything. And so, Father, we pray that what we heard today would really stay with us, that we would humbly confess each day that we need you to open our eyes to the glory, glories of you, of who you really is, the God's anointed King, the resurrected Lord of the universe, and that you got there by denying yourself, taking up your cross, and being faithful to what your Father was calling you to do. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would grant us the ongoing spiritual sight, that we would follow the real Jesus, 
reorganizing our priorities of life around the cross, being ready to deny ourselves, ready to take up our cross, ready to serve others, because it's worth it, because it leads to salvation and eternal glory. But for that, we really, really need your help. And so we ask that in your precious name. Amen.